Crime Conversations bring together the biggest names in true crime, recorded live at CrimeCon London 2022, partnered by CBS Reality. For more information on future CrimeCon events, visit crimecon.co.uk. Welcome to the live recording of Swindle's Search for the Truth, which is a fairly new podcast venture that myself and David Swindle started earlier in the year. I'm sure most of you won't need to be introduced to David Swindle, but we will do a few brief introductions before we get into it. So David Swindle is a veteran former detective who worked for within the police for 34 years and is most known for Operation Anagram, the investigation into the murders of Peter Tobin and, of course, the Glasgow airport bombings. And then we've also got Lindsay with us today. She's a true crime historian, which sounds like the dream job, to be fair. And um, I'm sure you're all going to be really interested in some of what Lindsay's done and what she's doing and what she does with her time on a daily basis. So I'm Kay, obviously. I'm the co-host of Swindle Search for the Truth. I know a lot of you know me because we've all met and had conversations. But today we're just going to have a little chat about some of the cases we've already covered briefly and offer some updates on those. And then we're going to get into a little conversation with Lindsay. So for those who haven't listened to the podcast yet, it primarily focuses on British people who've died abroad in suspicious circumstances where there are unanswered questions for family members. That's David's passion, isn't it? Fat victims. And yes. I mean, for, you know, I was in the police for 34 years and uh, I left the police and I hate to use that phrase, retired, because I haven't retired. For the last 11 years, I have been uh, supporting families to try and help them get answers. And, and that phrase, search for the truth, is something that I sort of staked my way forward out in the police with the Peter Tobin, the serial killer case, to get answers for families. And that's what I'm doing with the team that we have, the Victims Abroad team. And a lot of the issues um, that we're dealing with are, and in fact, the last four episodes of the podcast was about two tragic cases. Craig Marlon murdered in Lorette de Mar were out in Spain uh, two weeks ago, and Kirsty Maxwell in Benidorm. And a lot of them are live. These are live ongoing investigations, and we have other ones as well. But a big thing that I have always been involved in is historical analysis and looking at people and looking in the past. And at the last Crime Con conference, I met Kay here. I met other people like uh, Carol Lee, uh, the author that's in here, and also Lindsay, the true crime historian. And Lindsay, for me, I, I went to the place where she, she calls a library, and it is a fantastic thing. And, and I would recommend anyone that is listening to the podcast or that's here today to contact Lindsay. I know it's not that big because it's full of books and other things as well. So, so perhaps, <laughs> Lindsay, I, I find it fascinating. And that's why I thought it was a good thing, because we have lots of experts here. And, and I'm a great believer in the police. It's not, it's not about me as a senior investigating officer as what I do just now. It's about using the best team and experts are the best team. And it's what I would like to hear is some stuff from Lindsay, and I'm sure people will like to hear that as well. Yeah. So, We're going to get into it, but Lindsay's clutching a few objects there that some of you are going to be really interested in. So we'll come to them a little bit later as well. Just briefly before we get on with it, I want to say like what David said, it's all about victims, isn't it? And, and that goes back to what Nancy said this morning, which I think she said beautifully. Um, and, and that is the focus of what we want to do, and I'm sure what we all agree on here. And quickly, the updates on the cases. Yes, just very quick, because this is for the people that follow the, the podcast and downloaded it. They would know that we're out in Spain uh, two weeks ago to do with Craig Marlon's case in Lorette de Mar. And in the memorial bench it had there was damage right at the day 
when we're going out there and putting stuff out there, and we've reported that to local police. Um, there's people coming on and giving information, nothing that will take us anywhere. But the local media, first time ever, we have got really good support by our local media uh, in Lorette de Mar. And they did a short video of me, which you could probably see on my social media. Um, it's a short film and it's very good. Um, and also the Kirsty Maxwell case, there's more appeals going out in relation to that. That's the girl that was killed in Benidorm in very unusual circumstances. And the Kirsty Maxwell charity, which we're going to do our podcast on at some point, there was fundraising, other victims helping other victims. And um, the, a woman, Alice Shuba John, whose dad was killed in an unusual situation in India, and, and we're working in that just now, did the half marathon in Edinburgh, and she raised about... £1,215. Yeah. And Stephen Lynan, who ran... Uh, sorry, who climbed um, ben, ben Nevis, Nevis with a group of Craig's friends, which... Uh, on his anniversary, the anniversary of his death, which is just an unbelievable tribute, they raised £1,601 for the charity as well. And that money will go to helping get answers for other people who've been affected. Yeah, and that's the thing, victims helping our victims. And, and, and as has been said, you never know until you're in that situation what it's like or it happens to someone. And sadly, the government, and I've said this before, I'm on record as saying it, the UK government do not support families properly. There's no joined up support for them. It's absolutely shocking that they're left to find their own way and finance their way through a system. And the Craig Marlin case has become historical. It's become historical 10 years old because of the incompetence out there. And, and I'm quite open about it. So, historical stuff. Yeah. So the first question, I'm sure we, you all want to know a little bit more about what Lindsay does. And so how did you get into what you do and what is it that you do? Wow, um, I've been passionate about true crime since I was about 12 years old, so I've been studying it for over 30 years. Um, as a historian, I sort of travel around the country researching historical cases. I was very privileged to work at Scotland Yard for five years in their famous Black Museum, which we call the Crime Museum these days. So as a historian, that was a dream come true, obviously seeing all those fascinating objects belonging to such famous cases, really. As a crime historian, I sort of give lectures, presentations. I also collect true crime memorabilia relics, objects. My own natural true crime archive in my little house has around 5,000 books, um, hundreds of documents, original objects, relics, audiovisual material, photographs. And so I get asked by other researchers and writers whether they can use some of my material. But I travel around the country researching. I love Victorian cases, I have to say, as well as a few modern ones. My passion's really the older history. Researching, finding new things out, because even though the perpetrators may have been brought to justice on some of these famous trials and cases, there's still often within those stories fascinating complexities and objects which we still don't understand and we still can't work out even today. So I like trying to research those sort of little things and going around going to actual the murder sites actually visiting relatives if they are still alive and descendants of some of these famous cases getting their oral histories from their their families and sort of yeah doing lots of different research and projects i think that's so worthwhile as well because obviously police have, have only got a limited amount of time and money to spend don't they and so they've got to prioritize the cases that are alive now and so you're doing vital work with looking at other cases and I, I think things change you know what was expected decades ago, centuries ago, the public expectations are different. And having done what I have done, looking back in the old cases and looking at someone's life, Peter Tobin's life, and going back to what he might have done or what he not have done, you know, you're actually dealing with different attitudes to things and different attitudes to a lot of things about women and other aspects. But you're also 
you don't have the technology then. So when you're looking at something a way back, uh, and, and I worked on a case in Northern Ireland, and it was a review, historical cases review, very controversial terrorist attack, and we were looking at things. We were applying what is of today to something that the officers were trying to deal with in 1980. So when Lindsay's looking at these things, and I found it absolutely fascinating, there were some cases jump out at me and I go, I would like to have a go at that and look at that properly. And uh, the, that is the thing, that the information is there, and, and mm. it's how to use it now, and you're looking at it from a different way. And you likened yourself as a detective, I think. I see my, classify myself as a historical detective, really, even though um, I've never been a, in the force, so to speak. I've um, been around Scotland Yard and, and worked with some amazing people. But yeah, very much a historian, but a historical detective. And one of the things I'm personally passionate about regarding victims of crime is actually being one of the first historians to track down the final resting places of a lot of famous uh, victims from Victorian times upwards who whose you know, final resting place hasn't been known. For example, I tracked down Ethel and Eve, who was Dr. Crippen's mistress. I was the first person to find where she was, was buried. And so I spent a lot of my time in churchyards and graveyards, actually, <laughs> which can be interesting, but important for victims. And, and also meeting descendants where I can. David is very much on this. It's sort of crime and the impact of crime. Even though if I researched something from 100 years ago, when you meet descendants, that impact of that crime is still going on in their families right now. And that's absolutely amazing. And then there's one in particular, in fact, two I think you mentioned to me, where a person is fingered as being the suspect. Mm. And that family have got to deal with that throughout their life. So perhaps it's not also about detecting who did it. Mm. It's about it's the proving truth. It's the truth. It's the truth, and that's and very that's much... I'm a truth seeker yeah. in, in my yeah. history world, you yeah. know? Yeah, and that's the thing, because there are some like that, and there's some very controversial ones. And one in particular that I actually spoke on last year, and you were in the audience, and that's how mm. we met. Go with it. It's yeah. not far from here. Lord Lucan. <laughs> the Lord Lucan case, yeah. So over the years, that was something I was fascinated with since I was, since I was quite a young person. Um, and then over the years, I got to meet an interview for many hours in her kitchen, Lady Lucan. She, I think maybe because I was female, we had a bit of rapport. She didn't ever let many journalists in. She didn't speak to many people, um, certainly before she wrote her final memoirs, before she, she passed away. Um, so I was very lucky to have that. I've never actually... I always promised I would never expose any of her interviews while she was alive and I honoured that and I, so I have a lot of material I have to decide what to do with it but I got to know her son George and the current you know the current Lord Lucan but I also got to meet Sandra Rivett's son so Sandra was the victim of uh, and I say alleged Lord Lucan because of course he's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law and even though he may or may not be dead he has never had that process of the judiciary yeah. going through a trial so Things I've seen and some of the police files that I saw, not through working at the yard by any means, because I didn't have access then, but I had access through other means when I was brought in as a consultant on things. When I saw certain papers, there was a lot more to that story than most people ever know about. Certainly we need to look more, look more at the actual victim herself, Sandra Rivet, and her private life, which uh, I'm not going to go into now, we don't have time. But certainly the papers I saw... She's a very complicated young lady. She had a complex love life. And so there's actually no real forensic evidence, really, to link Lucan to the case. It's interesting to think maybe, maybe he wasn't the perpetrator. And that's, for most people, unconceivable. No, he definitely was it. I said that, and that, you know, I questioned that. And I actually questioned that because everything was focused unusually on the suspect or the person. Mm. And what I actually mentioned at that panel that we did last year was, what about the victim? What do we know about the victim? And 
That's and also looking at something you've been talking about earlier, um, looking at perpetrators in their earlier lives, and that's something that people are talking about at this particular conference, you know, their childhoods and how that impacts. And not many people know Lord Lucan had a, went to a child psychologist, one of the most famous ones in this country, Dr Winnicott, for many years as a child. So he was a damaged person, to be fair, when he became an adult, and so was Veronica, his wife. Um, she saw psychologists as well. So I think sometimes when two people are independent, they may not have any mental health issues, but when people come together, sometimes and those health issues will come out. And I think certainly that, that happened in their relationship. And I, and I think what's quite interesting, in fact, very interesting for me is, is uh, I'm not a detective anymore, I'm, I'm a member of the public. But one of the things with, with my skills and what I did in the police is being able to tap into this. And what fascinates me, and there's actually a, a programme on this week, Lucy Worsley, I don't know if anyone saw it. And the, the first one was looking at who killed the two princes in the Tower of London. And that was a really interesting thing. And People love mysteries, don't they? They love mysteries, yeah. but they also mysteries. they want to unravel it. And, you know, I'm a great believer in, you know, your genealogists and things like that, because everyone brings something t to the table and um, we should never discount it. And I spend half my life on Ancestry, like many yeah. other people yeah. do, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. and researchers. And in America, they're solving cases now, aren't they, with ancestral DNA and things like that as well, which is unbelievable, and that is undoubtedly the future. Of there, is, there, are, there are some checks and balances, though, because you do get the vigilante thing, the situation where people are labelled as that mm. because of that. And yes, the, I think it was a killer in New York, I can't remember, not in, in California, and that was solved by a group of ex-police officers and experts, a Zodiac killer. And that was solved by that. And I, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, the Golden State yeah. killer was solved but, by... Um, yes, sorry, Junior. yes. Oh, I was just saying, sort of. Yeah. Zodiac I was going to say it's not 100%. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Thanks for correcting me on that. Yeah. Not confirmed. They say this is... Yeah. But there are dangers yeah. in that by labelling someone. And, you know, one of the things that we do is when I'm dealing with something, you know, it's a review, so we present it to the police and the authorities yeah. and say, here you are, there's the recommendations, and you might want to consider. But I know what you're saying, because I did read about that one. Yeah, um, it was the Golden State Killer, wasn't it, that was solved by some oh, yeah. relatives, that, um, DNA, yeah, which yeah. Paul Holes is going to be doing a very good talk about. It's good to have some local knowledge here, <laughs> some Americans <laughs> in the audience here. So you have, you, you're sourcing of information. Mm -hmm. Can anyone source that? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So a lot of us can all access the, you know, the British newspaper archive. I'm sure some of you do online. That's one of my busiest, busiest resources I'm using because that's got historical newspapers for the last, you know, 200 years. So certainly with Victorian cases that I love to research, that has been my valuable source. But the National Archives here in London, the Metropolitan Archives, you know, there's so many sources, but there's now digital and online resources as well. But then things maybe that other members of the public wouldn't be able to do is if you actually get to track down family members or descendants and things like that and then have that personal relationship with them which is what I've been lucky to have on various cases over the years so that's a bit unique I suppose. And it's been methodical and it's researching and the police use researchers, we use analysts, we use all sorts of techniques and you know for me a true crime historian is something I'm not into Victorian care, I haven't gone that far back, but I find it quite interesting. So how do you find the cases that you work on? Then? When there's a new case that you stumble across, 
It's often watching documentaries, I have to say, or going back through some Victorian newspapers and things I'll come across, um, and I'll go, oh, that hasn't been... No-one's ever written a book on that, or no-one's ever looked at that. Maybe I could look at that for the first time and see what the story's about. Then I'll sort of go back to see... If there's, the first port of call for me is always to see if there's a MEPO file, I've watched a Metropolitan Police um, record file, or a, a, a criminal CRO file, or a Home Office file, a HO file, at the National Archives. Because if there's already a massive amount of papers still in existence, as, as Carol and other no, authors... No, that's your first port of call to see if you've got that criminal investigation and those notes already there. If you haven't, it's a little bit more tricky to try and delve in because the sources are mainly going to be newspapers or other court records and that survive. But my main project to have seen my life's work is actually a biography of Queen Victoria's doctor who has been labelled as Jack the Ripper in all of the films. And, and my biography what will prove once and for all he's not Jack the Ripper for his family and we're in the moment at the moment the process of trying to organize a new gravestone for him because when the Michael Caine film came out in 1988 claiming this this doctor was Jack the Ripper everybody believed it and they sort of smashed and vandalized his gravestone and that's in pieces so hopefully going to try and you know organize his, his that's new grave. back to the labeling uh, and incidentally there um, there was a mention and, and because this is audio you wouldn't see it it was pointed to Caroline Lee He's a true crime author who's written quite a lot of very interesting Very well researched. Books, and she'll use that quite a lot. Do you have anything to say just now, Carol, on this while we're here? I'm still absolutely exhausted. <laughs> She's absolutely exhausted, the long train journey. That's for tomorrow. That's I think Carol's got I know exactly what you mean about the first port of call. That's yeah. the very first thing I do. I love finding cases and thinking, oh, first thing I do is go on Amazon. Has anybody written a book? Yeah. No, they haven't. Straight to the National Archives, can yeah. I find anything? To see if there's any files yeah. in existence. Yeah. Yeah. And then once you find, if you can't, that's where the real yeah. struggle begins, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, and, and you have to go back to other contemporary sources you can find. Yeah. Aye, and, and I think the important thing here is that this is true crime, and it's it's real crime. It's something that was a controversial conviction or whatever. It's you know, it's not about glamorising it in any way, and in a way it is trying to get the truth. You know, and that is a thing. And, and one of the things I have said quite a lot in the media and some of the cases was involved, the passage of time should not be detrimental to the detection of crime. So it shouldn't matter how long. And there's been quite a few recent high-profile cases, the Babes in the Wood one, the DNA stuff. Now, you know, that was in the area where Peter Tobin was operating, the serial killer. And the number of times I had people coming to say, Tobin did the Babes in the Wood, media speculation, things like that. You know, there's a danger there, and there's a danger of labelling people, um, and it, it's quite interesting that. So there's quite a lot, and it's looking back, um, and sometimes police forces don't like to look back. And there's also cases that are being reinforced by historical research and, and reanalyzing things like the Clidach murders, which um, was is a local case in South Wales. The killer protested his innocence until the very end. He died last year. And ha shortly after he died, South Wales Police issued their re report and they'd actually found more DNA evidence to prove that he was the killer. They'd reinforced their original case and, and that was all thanks to um, reanalyzing. And yeah, I, I'm a great believer in it and I'm sure people in this room are as well. That you know, People like Lindsay, historians, researchers, they might be seen in some different... Uh, portrayed as something else, you know. You love going to cemeteries, spend your life at cemeteries. You've got a couple of uh, things yeah. here. It's audio, but we'll put it on <laughs> social media because you can do that. Yeah, it's quite interesting when you see this. Can, sad, anyone, can anyone guess what it is or who it belongs to? <laughs> 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 
No, this little top belonged to Lady Luke, and it's just a whole section of her wardrobe that I actually um, own. I just I brought this along today because a it's, it's portable, but b it shows you how tiny, how tiny she was, um, size six to eight, and yeah, so. We won't go into details about what, why that's relevant to the case, but, but uh, it is. Maybe we'll talk about it on the podcast in the future. Yeah. But that just shows you how tiny she was, as a, and she was a victim of, of, of this crime. And this is a big one, because there'll be no money <laughs> in this one. Yeah, yeah. Right. this one is um, one of the things she kindly signed for me when I was talking, at, talking with her at her, her flat. This is a photograph of her, holding a photograph of her husband in the 1980s, funnily enough. Um, but she signed it to me, which is very nice of her. And as I said, I spent many hours in her kitchen interviewing her. And then this one here, this is actually one of Lord Lucan's original checkbooks, unused. I think if I used it today, it would still bounce. <laughs> okay, so... The Earl of Lucan. <laughs> and that's Guards and Cavalry Coxes and Kings, SW1. So, um, but I have all sorts of objects from lots of different crimes, belonging to perpetrators, belonging to victims, you know, so all sorts of things in my archive. It's, you know, time, any questions? I mean, it might be difficult with the mic here. I don't know if it can be picked up. I've got one question quickly. Do you think Jack Liverpool will ever be solved? Do I think Jack Liverpool will ever be solved? I live in hope. That's something that I've researched and lectured on for a long time, done a lot of documentaries on. I live in hope because back in 1988, Scotland Yard had two packages arrive back to the, the Crime Museum with some of the most amazing documents in which we'd had lost for over 100 years. So I'm still hoping there are descendants of officers who have things in attics and some more paper will, will turn up. I'm hopeful. That's amazing. I would always say you've always, if there's a line, if there's something unsolved, you've always got to live in hope. Yeah. As long as there's, because changes in technology, changes in allegiances. Yeah, 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 yeah but for sure, yeah. How do you feel about the chain of custody if some information or some part of evidence? I don't think there would be any physical evidence because it would have no. degraded anyway back then, and there was nothing particularly from the scene of crime anyway. But if documents come to light, then the Metropolitan Police, we can verify whether they're, they're uh, original and accurate and who wrote them, because we have handwriting analysis from all the officers at the time anyway. We, you know, we, we sort of know their writing pretty well. So we'd be able to prove, and also through the chain of command, where it's come from and the provenance and that. That key, provenance is key for every historian, isn't it, at the end of the day. So, and the police. Of course. Yeah. So I think we would be able to tell you know, that that's a legitimate object and it has come down from the right correct place it's not a forgery that's the first thing we have to verify obviously it's accuracy but it wasn't until 1988 when we even had the images of jack's victims that if you look at the older history books they're not in there because they were sent back in this anonymous package and with other things so we haven't even had some of the documents and photos of our victims until 1988 which is quite amazing so yeah. i am Yes, there were two packages. One package, actually, I won't give the name away, but we do know who that came from. That came from the family of a policeman who had passed away and they had found it and they had rightfully given it back. The other one had a Croydon postcode on it. We do not know who sent that. Uh, fingerprint analysis was done on it. It didn't come up with a match. So I have my own theories about uh, where that came from, but and it was via a police member as well, but we haven't got any proof. Yeah, but that is the continuity. You know, that is always a, and the evidential significance on it. But it's intelligence to point you towards something else. And as Lindsay's saying, and this happens, that someone somewhere, because some people involved in this, particularly Lord Lucan, when it was moving in society at a highest level, and someone somewhere might have... Someone somewhere knew what happened else. to Lucan, you know? Yeah. So I would never say never, as regards really... detections. 
really interesting as well because obviously we are so used to DNA evidence now, aren't we? Being like the key, and we know that juries look for DNA evidence. If there isn't any DNA, they assume that there's no there's no evidence yes. there. And with his historical research, proves the importance of documentation and how sometimes going back to the actual paper evidence and the, the statements and things like that is the key to the cases and it, it doesn't always have to be a big romantic DNA find. No, and, well, and finding letters and things. DNA yeah. has become the everything. Yeah. yeah. But there's more than just DNA. But it, it has to be used in conjunction yeah. with it other evidence. And even in a court of law, it's yeah. not, it can yeah. only, you know, it's not yeah, the, the whole thing. The low copy thing. DNA, yeah. contact d trace DNA. You have to be careful sometimes with some of these things. Um, and, and sadly, that has become the talking point everywhere. And people expect that. Have you not got DNA? Have you not Particularly got difficult in, in historical aye, cases, aye. obviously. So, so time-wise, um, anything else? Carol and Lee, yes, <laughs> speak up, please. Curiosity, um, for each one of you, which case interests you the most? Solved or unsolved, and why? I quite like some of the Amer like find the American cases quite interesting. So Jennifer Cassie, Maura Murray, and... I hate to say it, but the Jeremy Bamber case in the in the UK. I know it's solved, but for me, that's always been the case that I've been interested in. That's really hard for me because I've sort of got three key ones. But go on, we're doing top three. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one, I suppose, because I've spent thirty years researching it, twenty years as a tour guide, and done lots of documentaries, it would be Jack the Ripper. That's probably going to be my, my my focus, which I started off as, as a child researching. Um, then Dr. Crippen, nineteen ten, the murder of his wife Belle Elmore. Um, I own actually a lot of Dr. Crippen's original exhibits and things. Um, and then third one would be the murder of Mrs. Thomas by Kate Webster in eighteen seventy nine in Richmond. And uh, we're trying to track down where her final resting place is. Allegedly, her school was found a few years ago in um, one of the Attenborough brothers' backyards. So I'm not sure it is. That's it is, but she, that that head has been buried separately to the rest of the body. It would be nice to join those up one day. But that's something I'm doing some podcasts on recently. So yeah, those three. And mine is more recent. Uh, I would just like to know who killed Craig Mallon. It was the French guys in, in the Lorette de Man, Spain, because that's where I was a couple of years, uh, two weeks ago. And the age-old story that features in Scotland, and there was a programme about it recently, which I was on at the end, Bible John. Now, that's a label, and I would, that's a separate one that I'll probably speak about some other time, but that is a label that was put on three killings that I am not convinced was the same person, and I certainly don't. I think it was Peter Tobin. In fact, there's no evidence it was Peter Tobin. And the other one is the Lord Looking one, because that does fascinate me. And it fascinates me for various ways uh, after having the discussions at the panel and with Lindsay and everything that surrounded that about the victim and about his status. There's just so much more information on that case which the public aren't aware of for ethical reasons because it is actually still an open it's, case. It's not a closed case. Yeah, exactly. It's not a closed case. So, it's still an open case yeah. to me. Yeah, so thank you all for coming. Thank you all for attending. Uh, hopefully this isn't going to be the last one we do live. Yeah, and, and we can get these uh, things on the social media. Yeah. Uh, we'll put them on a, a Facebook page, Swindle yeah. Search for the Truth. If you've not listened to it, there's a couple of cases that we'll be putting on soon. Sure. Really tragic ones, actually, abroad. And we're also going to be putting two, the two Spanish cases, doing podcasts in Spanish, mm. you know, for one case in Spanish, two in Spanish, which is, you know, people... We tend to be quite arrogant about the English language. We need to reach people in Spain. Thanks, everyone, for yeah. coming along. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> You've been listening to Crime Conversations, recorded live at CrimeCon London 2022, partnered by CBS Reality. For more information on future CrimeCon events, visit crimecon.co.uk.